bless the reading and the hearing of his uh, sacred scripture. In the first letter to the church at Corinth in uh, chapter 7, we read, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man in the, of the Lord. Likewise, he, was free. he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each of you was called, there let him remain with God. This is the very word of our gracious and holy God. Good morning, everybody. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer before we turn to God's holy word. Uh, Lord, we just sang, great is your faithfulness. And Lord, we have seen it demonstrated over and over again. Your faithfulness is extraordinarily great. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We count on that. We count on you being faithful to your word, to your people, repeatedly, and, and in the best possible way, because we are in Christ. We are sons of God. And so, Lord, I want to pray for, um, especially for Kyle and for Steve, as they're both recovering from uh, different conditions. But, uh, Lord, would you continue to provide these men strength, heal their bodies. And I thank you for their, their service to us as a, a congregation, their friendship to me personally. And, uh, Lord, I just count on you uh, continuing to strengthen them and get them on their feet. And, uh, Lord, where, how they will serve now that their, uh, their health is restored to. Um, Lord, I pray that you would use them and bless them. And Lord, I know of numerous needs within the congregation of different people in different situations, um, personal needs, family needs, um, all kinds of things going on. And so Lord, I just, I wanna pray a general prayer for our congregation that uh, as we struggle through these things, as we wander through, as we try to find what it is that we're supposed to be doing at any given moment, Lord, we pray that we would be walking with you and that you would make your holy, through the Holy Spirit, you would make clear to us that you are with us, that you care, and Lord, as uh, James tells us, if anyone, anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. And so Lord, we pray that uh, in those areas where we lack wisdom, that you would fill that up. Um, and so be with us, Lord. Uh, lead us as your people, uh, as a church and as individuals, as families, um, as you see fit. And Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name for his glory, amen. So um, last week we took a break and uh, we, we looked at marriage kind of did a deep dive on marriage and so now we're back to chapter seven again we're, we're, we're digging back in and in this middle section i think paul is doing something very helpful uh to remember where we're at right 
the Corinthians, he started in chapter 5, a man has his stepmother, and you people are boasting. And then at the beginning of chapter 7, he quotes their, their dictate or their, their thought, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And so when you, when you put these together, I don't know if you remember, I was like, what are they thinking? How can they be so polar opposite? And what I think is going on is I think the Corinthians tend to run to extremes. I know we would never do that. We don't, you know, that doesn't happen now. But these Corinthians are running to these extremes. Either we have liberty in Christ, therefore do whatever you want, or we've been called holy, and therefore you can't do this and this and this and this. And, and so Paul is, is trying to draw them back to this is who we are in Christ. And so when we come to this section today, live like you're called. This is, this is that idea that you're called and, and you're brought into Christ where you're at in life. I think what he's doing is he's pausing in the middle of the discussion of marriage to draw them back and say, all right, let's not head to those extremes. <laughs> Let, let's, let's stay where we're supposed to be. Because when we get back to seven, he's going to go back on marriage. And what he said at the beginning was a pretty strong statement about what marriage is and about singleness and those kind of things. And so I think Paul was maybe um, a little concerned about the rushing to extremes. And, and you know, we probably need that too. Uh, so what we're going to see today is, is he's going to talk about the life to which we've been called, it's the same, but it's better. There's more to it. There's more going on. And so uh, it starts with this statement, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So he calls us to lead the life, to, to live according to who we are. We've been called in Christ, but that doesn't mean we go to the extreme and have to give up everything and become monks or nuns or ascetics hiding out in the desert or something, um, you can still be who you are in Christ. And, and so that's what he's calling you to. It's the Lord has assigned this to you. So that even before you're a believer, the Lord has assigned to you this place, and he's called you to this place. And now that you're in that place and he calls you to himself, he says, you don't have to abandon everything. Now, there are things that you do have to abandon. So if any of you are smuggling um, uh, fentanyl into the United States, I, I want you to stop that. Don't do that. If any of you are making your money off a giant pyramid scheme and stealing from uh, widows and orphans or something like that, you need to stop doing that. There are certain things you cannot continue to do, right? But for most of us, in just the role that we've been called into in this ordinary life we live, that's sanctified because God has assigned that to us and he's led us to that and he's called us in that. And so this is something that the Lord has assigned. And then Paul says, this is my rule in all the churches. So I don't know if you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at when Paul says things like, not I, but the Lord. And then he says, I, but not the Lord. And we talked about, is, does that mean it's his opinion and it doesn't count? Uh, this is Paul's rule and so we can ignore it. Well, obviously not. This is the apostle speaking to us. And so he has the authority within the church to say these things. So this is his rule in all the churches. Lead the life which God has called you to. It's okay to be who you were. And so now he's going to go into some uh, specific examples, some specific cases. Uh, verse 18 and 19, he says, was, any, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Why? For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, doesn't it sound strange? This, this was like freaking me out. Anybody who was circumcised 
try to remove the marks of their circumcision. I don't even want to think about that. That just makes me shudder to begin. But it wasn't unheard of. This isn't something that, like, Paul is speaking in hyperbole. Um, there's a book called First Maccabees. It was written around 100 BC or so, and it's referring to the time when Antioch Epiphanes was uh, conquering in, in uh, Israel around 150 BC. And in the first chapter of, of First Maccabees, it, there's a statement that says, uh, speaking of these kind of disloyal Jews who did things like they built a gymnasium in, in Jerusalem. And we're thinking, you know, like Planet Fitness or something? No, a gymnasium in a, in a Greek context, this was the center of Greek culture. This was, this was not just a place to go work out. This was an expression of Greek culture. And so these disloyal Jews had built a gymnasium in Jerusalem of all places. And so then, then the author goes on, he says, they disguised their circumcision and abandoned their holy covenant. They allied themselves with the Gentiles and sold themselves to wrongdoing. So even in the century before Jesus' birth, there was this idea of removing the marks of circumcision or hiding your circumcision. What they wanted to be was Greek. They didn't want to be Jews. And so that's what's happening here. He says when, you, when they want to remove the marks of their circumcision, what they're trying to do is become Roman, become Greek, become not Jewish. And, and so don't miss this. When we go through this, that idea of circumcision and uncircumcision, that's really talking about Jew and Gentile. And you, you hear that, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So that was how the Jews would identify themselves and, and dif differentiate themselves from the Gentiles was we are the circumcision, they are the uncircumcision. So when he's saying that here, what he's talking about is were you called as a Jew, you don't have to become a Gentile. Were you called as a Gentile, you don't have to become a Jew. That, that's where he's going. So we don't have to change our, our identity, who we are. We don't have to change our ethnic identity, our national origin or something to become more of a Christian. Whatever we're called, wherever we're at when we're called, that's where we've been called. Jew and Gentile. There is no Jew or Gentile in Christ. There's no distinction anymore. That wall of division has been torn down. And so we're all one in Christ. And then he ends, he says, circumcision doesn't count and uncircumcision, that doesn't matter anymore. That mattered for a while, but not anymore. Why? Because Jesus has come. Jesus is here. Circumcision was the mark of the covenant that said these people are different. They were set apart. They were unique. Once those people generated what they were supposed to generate, which was the Messiah, which Jesus came, now we don't need to mark the circumcision anymore. Circumcision becomes something even better, even greater, not just a mark in the flesh. It's a renewed heart. It's a circumcised heart. That's a better thing. That, that's what God was looking for all along. So circumcision and uncircumcision, that, that doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. Instead, he says, but keeping the commandments of God. That's what it's about. So now, here's, here's the question. Is that works righteousness? You don't, be, you, you don't have to be circumcised. Now you just have to do these good works. Keep the commandments of God and you're, you're in Christ. That, that's not what he means. I, I don't think that's where he's going with that because he says a similar thing in Galatians. In Galatians 5, he says, For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So when he says keeping the commandments of God, what that is is that's faith at work through love. What it means is we love God so much, we love Jesus so much, we say, 
this is who they are. I want to be more like them. And so we're, we're acting not out of, if I do these things, God will like me. Or if I do these things, then I'll receive the blessing that God has for me. But instead, we're saying, I'm in Christ. What does it mean for me to be in Christ? It's faith working through love. James warned us, if your faith doesn't do anything, it's not saving faith. He didn't say you're justified by works, period. He said faith produces something in you. This new life that you have in Christ, it changes something in you. You have a new identity, a new purpose, a new role in life. And so you live differently. You keep the commandments of God by faith working through love. That's the important part. So it's not works righteousness. That's not where he's going. But don't miss it. Now that you've been in, included in Christ, now that you're one of his, you're a new creature, not Jew or Gentile. That, that doesn't count anymore. You don't have to become one or the other to be acceptable. So then verses 20, and 20 through 23, he says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. He's going to echo that a number of times. He's gonna, in seven verses, he's going to say it three times. You think that's important? I think that might be what the point of this, this section is, is, is let each one remain in the condition in which he's called. So then verse 21, now he moves to another case. Jew and Gentile, okay, we've, saw, we've discussed that. Here's another one. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is free in Christ. Likewise, who is free was called when he was called is a bondservant in Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants to men. I like the fact that when Rich read, he didn't say bondservants. His translation said the word slave. Now, the ESV has footnotes. Every time bondservant comes up, it's a complicated word. It, it's not as straightforward as we think. The, the Greek word is doulos, and doulos can mean slave, but it can also mean somebody who's in service to somebody else, an employee or a friend helping a friend. It's, it's a little bit more complicated. So in the introduction to the ESV, they said that the term actually covers a range of relationships that require a range of renderings, either slave, bondservant, or servant, depending on the context. I think this context demands the word slave because, he says, if you can avail yourself of your freedom, then do that. If you're doing, your, a, friend to your, uh, if you're doing a friend a favor and you're a servant that way, don't avail yourself of freedom. Finish what you're doing for your friend. But if you're slaves, if you're owned, if, you're, if you've been purchased by someone else, then you, can, um, you should avail yourself of the opportunity to become free. So what he's saying here is, if you're a slave, don't worry about it. That doesn't mean you're less of a Christian. Why that's important is because of the way slaves were understood in the first century. The, the epitome of what was good and right in Greek culture, which got inherited into Roman culture, was freedom. The freedom of the person. So the, the more freedom you enjoyed in society, the better off you were. The higher uh, tier you were in, the more you were esteemed. A slave? Bottom of the rung. Worst thing possible. Uh, according to the British Museum, they said, under Roman law, enslaved people had no personal rights and were regarded as properties of their master. They could be bought, sold, and mistreated at will, and were unable to own property, enter into co a contract, or legally marry. This is how bad it was. As a matter of fact, there's one place where it lists the uh, equipment in a, in a shop, and the slaves are not listed as people, they're listed as tools. That was how slaves were viewed. So now imagine 
Christ coming in and saying, you're a slave and I died for you. You're, you're the bottom rung in society and I have come to redeem you. And, and you don't have to stop being a slave to be worthy of this. You don't have to find some way to, to get your freedom and then I'll accept you. I've come to you. Christ came to serve, not to be served. So he's come all the way down to redeem that. So when Paul says, remain in the station you're called, this was used by American slavers to tell Africans that were enslaved, you can't seek your freedom. It's, it's against the Bible because they land out, they omitted parts of the verse. That bit about if you can get your freedom, do it, that wasn't in the slave Bible. It sounds like Paul is endorsing slavery and saying, be a slave. Is he? He's not. He's saying, look, it's, it's not a problem for being a Christian if you're a slave. But he does offer this caveat. He says, if you can get your freedom, you should do that. It would be better for you to be free than to be a slave. And so when you go to the book of Philemon, Philemon owned a slave. His name was Onesimus. And Onesimus ran away from Philemon. And he met Paul, probably in Rome. And Philemon, I mean, uh, Onesimus now becomes a Christian and a servant to Paul. And so Paul is, is, is enjoying Onesimus' company, his fellowship, his friendship. And he says, brother, we've got to make this right. You've got to go back to your owner. You, you can't be here. You ha we have to set this right. And so he writes a letter to Philemon and says, look, you have a right to own him. You have a right over him. He is your property. But I want you to do what's right, and I'm not going to command you. There is a right thing to do, and it was receive him not as a slave but as a brother. This slave has now been set free. You, you don't, and he, say, he says, I, I want this to come from your heart, right? The commandments of God, faith working in love. I want you to love your brother and see if he's not more useful to you now as a brother than he was. And by the way, Onesimus goes on to become a bishop in the early church, so he was kind of a big deal. So it worked. So when Paul is saying, if you're a slave, stay there. That's not this absolute statement that says you can never change because he does add that caveat. If you can get your freedom, do that. That's better. But what's important, he says, is you were bought with a price. We have to understand slavery in a, in a not a Roman context, not an American context, but in a Christian context. If you're a slave, you're free. In Christ, what, what can they do to you? Kill you? Wow, then I get to meet my Savior even faster. What else could they do to you? They could be rude to you and mean to you. You're suffering for righteousness sake. You know who else suffered for righteousness sake? You're being like your savior. That's a good thing. So he says, don't, don't worry about this. This doesn't diminish your Christianity if you're a slave. That's what he's comforting them in, not saying stay a slave and, and slavery is good and, and promoting it. Again, he's, he's, he's reminding us, you were bought with a price. And by the way, once you were bought with a price, every single one of us free people in America, you are now a slave to Christ because he bought you. But this is the person you want to be a slave to. This, if you've got to be a slave, you want to be a slave to God. Because he's, he's not just good to his slaves, he's abundantly generous to his slaves. He sends them love. He, he gives them their freedom. And so if you're a slave, you're free. And you people who think you're free, you're slaves. you got to understand the kingdom is upside down. Don't become a slave to men. That's, that's bondage. That's bad. That's not a good place to be, to be indebted and under the servitude of somebody else. Instead, know that you're serving God. And there's much more we could say about slavery, but let, let's press on. So verse 24, So brothers, in whatever condition you were called, there let him remain. But he adds this other 
qualifier, with God. Whatever you were called in, remain that way, but now you're with God. This means there's something different. There's something more. It's changed. It's the same. You're still a slave. You're still a Greek. You're still a Jew. You're still whatever, but now you're with God, and, and it's different. It's better. There's more to it. it. It's a better thing. So let me see if I can illustrate this. This occurred to me on Monday, and I, I, we're going to try this. We'll see how this works. So Monday, I was sitting, and I was reading, and I had some jazz playing. And I was listening to the jazz, and the song Take Five by Dave Brubeck Quartet came on. And I love that song, but I wasn't really paying attention. And it gets to the middle of the song, and there's a break for the um, solos. So the sax solo starts, and then it fades out. And then there's this slow lead-in to the drum solo. And what's going on in that section is the bass and the piano are just doing the rhythm over and over again, over and over again. And then the drum starts slowly coming in. And then the drum gets to do his solo. And it was that break that I went, I, I'd never listened to it that close before. I never paid attention to it. And, and it's kind of a cool thing that happens there. The, the song Take Five, it's called Take Five because it's written in something called 5-4 time. Most songs are in 4-4 four, four time. Now, what does that mean, 4-4 four, four time? That means that there are four beats to the measure, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. So you could clap on one and three or two and four. And you can clap, by the way. That's, that's okay if you do that. That's, that's not forbidden in church. But we, we would do that on one or four, or one, or one and three or two and four because we know that rhythm, that's, that way that breaks up. That's how we hear music. Now imagine if somebody comes along and plays five, four, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. And every beat is stressed exactly the same. It would feel very alien to us. We're not used to five beats in the measure. So what they did was something very clever. Is the rhythm section, when they're playing, they stress one and four, but not five. So when, when you hear one and then four, and then all of a sudden you're expecting one again, five drops in. And it feels the same, but different. So listen to this. This is, this is the section I'm talking about. And see if you can't hear what they're doing. One, two, three, four, five. Go ahead and play it. Can you hear that? One, two, three, four. What they've done is they've made it so it's accessible to us. It's this different groove, it's this different vibe, but it still feels the same because we get one, we get four, and then you drop a five in there, and it's something, it's the same, but it's better. There's more to it. That's why it was so strange and so unfamiliar, and yet we could connect with it because they, they made sure they stressed those beats that we're familiar with, that we're used to. And that's exactly what I think Paul is getting at here is whatever condition you were called in, there let him remain. Beat five with God. Your, your position before you knew Christ, it doesn't look any different. I, I, I was a truck driver before I met Christ. I'm a truck driver after. But there's something different about it. The position is now changed. It's, it's got that extra beat in it. It's, it's fuller. It's richer. There's more going on. It's, it's more than what you thought it was. And so listen to how Paul describes this, these uh, four times when he says that we should do this. He says, the place you are in life is what the Lord has assigned to you. You are to be what God has called you to be. Verse 17. Verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. 24. We just heard. So, brothers, in whatever condition each one of you was called, 
Let him there remain with God. Because it's better to be with him. So you don't have to become a vegan or Jewish or male to be a better Christian. You don't have to be free or socially elite or poor to be a better Christian. God called you in that condition. He assigned you that condition, and he has provided that he's going to be with you in that condition. He elevates that condition to be something even more. So before it was about me. Now it's about God. It's a, it's a greater thing. So now that you're living your same life with God, you can be with God, whether you're Jewish, German, Korean, or Kenyan. The nationality doesn't matter anymore. There's no boundary there. Before, to be with God's people, you had to become Jewish. That was where the covenant was. That's where the worship was. Now, in Christ, it's spread across the globe. You can be rich, middle class, or poor, but you're with God in whatever condition you've been called. Now, rich, for a second here. Didn't a rich man come to Jesus and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, sell everything. So that means if you're rich, you have to sell everything. Otherwise, you're not a real Christian, right? You notice that's the only person he ever said that to. As a matter of fact, there's an opposite called a man named Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. And when Jesus goes to him, his house, he says, salvation has visited this home. And Zacchaeus' response is, hey, if I've wronged anybody, I'm paying them back four times as much as I wronged them. So the idea that you could be rich and still be a Christian sometimes sounds counterintuitive, but what was going on with that, that rich man who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And his answer was sell everything and follow me. Is the man also had this discussion where Jesus said, well, you know what the law says. What, what does the law say? He says, I've kept all of these from my youth up. And Jesus' response when he looks at him is, you love the man, said, I love you and you're deluded, you're missing something. You haven't kept all the commands. There's one you're missing. It's called, thou shalt not covet. So for you, in order to follow me, you have to obey the commands of God, including not coveting. And I know what you're feeling. Sell everything and come and follow me because you're coveting that above me. And it says the man went away sad because he had much riches. So it's not impossible for the rich to become Christians, um, camel, camel through the eye of a needle kind of thing, but everything's possible with God. So you don't have to become poor to become a, a better Christian. You don't have to be middle class to be a better Christian. You can be rich and be a good Christian. You can be married, single, or formerly married. We saw that last, the week before. You can be an engineer, a Starbucks barista, or a musician. There's, there's no sacred job in there that, that will draw you closer to God. You can be a boomer, Gen X, or Gen Z and be, be a Christian. That's good news for all of us because we kind of cover that spectrum. So then how do we do all that then? How do we live in the life in which we've been called and yet be with God in that life? What does that look like? I think the key it, for me is really, it's the first Bible verse I ever memorized, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in this flesh, I live, um, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do you do this? How do you live this life that you've been assigned in a way that honors God? Is, I think Paul sums it up for you right there. It's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. And the life you live now, you live for the Son of God. That's what it means to do that. That's what it looks like. It's no longer your life. 
Now you're saying, this life that I'm living, Lord, this is for you. How can I do that as a Starbucks barista in the way that glorifies God? How, how can I do that as a school teacher in the way that glorifies God? How, how, does, how does the fact that Jesus has come into my life modify what I'm doing, even though it looks exactly the same? So let your new life be informed by that. You, you, you don't need to live in the immediate satisfaction when you know that Jesus will return and it'll all be, you'll be raised. You don't have to say, I, I need it now. I, I see the thing. I want the thing. I'm going to get the thing. I'm going to do the thing now because life is short and, and you, know, you, you better make the most of it. What changes are you going, no, I'm going to be raised with Christ. I'm looking to the future. I have a, a hope that goes beyond this. God's telling me this is not a good thing. Praise the Lord. I have something much better coming. You don't have to strive for the approval of others. You know, while it's still nice, it no longer defines who you are because you have the approval of God in Christ. When, Christ, when God sees you, he sees his beloved son. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't, who, who else's opinion matters now? God has accepted me. God loves me. God received me as his own son. You don't like me? I'm sorry, I don't mean to be offensive, but it's not going to destroy me. When you're holding on to your own identity, if you don't like me, I could be crushed. That might mean I've failed to do what I'm going to do. When you're at work, if, if getting ahead of your peers now looks different. In, in a work environment, sometimes it can be really competitive. I've seen this a number of times. I called it kingdom building. Somebody at work knows how to do this one thing, and they're not going to tell anybody else. And everybody has to come to them, and they're going to maintain their kingdom. I have control because I can do this thing that nobody else can do. When you're in Christ, you, you can let go of that. It, it, your competition with your peers looks different because Christ has told you if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and serve everyone. So now instead of saying, I'm going to hold on to my little kingdom and do this thing, you go, how, I want to be first. I want to be the first in the kingdom, so how can I serve you? What can I do for you? It changes that dynamic. When somebody less, than deserving, or less deserving than you, someone you helped, receives the award, they get the employee of the month plaque, and they only got it because you were there helping them and doing the work with them, you can be glad for them now. You can celebrate with them. Why? Because my, my reward is not a plaque on the wall. My reward is eternal. I can't, you, I, you can't compete with the plaque on the wall. The plaque, plaque would be nice. I would take a plaque. As a matter of fact, when I was in the Air Force, we had a wall called my I Love Me Wall. And that's where you put all your plaques and awards and stuff was on your I Love Me Wall. And yes, I had one. <laughs> had my, my decorations and stuff up there. But now, I, I don't seek my authentication in that. And so if somebody gets it other than me, that's okay. Be blessed. If, if that's all you're going to get in life, man, I hope that makes you happy. I, I got a better answer, though. I got a bigger prize. And so you're going to want to share that with them. And then I think Colossians 3 sums it up pretty well. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So how can you live that life, that same life looks identical before you were born again and after you were born again? How can you do that? You, you change your attitude towards it. I am not seeking authentication in this. I'm not seeking um, approval in this. This doesn't prove who I am. Instead, I see it as a way to serve Christ. This is, this is part of Jesus ruling the world as me 
making this widget. That's part of how he rules the world is through me serving. This is, this is how he's, he's healing the sick is because I work at a hospital and I'm administering these IVs and I'm taking blood pressure and that's how Christ is working to heal the world is through me. Those, those are the ways that you do that. And there's a danger that we can get into when we, when we miss that, that shift that's happened with that extra fifth beat we don't catch. When we still think, well, now I'm a Christian, but I'm still living the same way I was before, therefore I must process it the same way. And, and there's two dangers to that. Um, Mike Horton in his book, or Ordinary, uh, I think he did a fairly good summary. He said, the desire to please others, to derive our identity from the words of someone other than God has a debilitating effect on our hearts. Instead of living from God's justification to the ungodly in Christ, we live for the approval and applause of sinners. When that approval is lacking, we close up, pull away, and retreat from the world, and perhaps even from God. The fear of failing, the fear of rejection, the desire to avoid pain may keep us from pursuing excellence in a healthy way that honors God. So that's why we have to have that, that part in place. The place you've been called to, you walk in that with God. If you forget the with God part, if you don't have the fifth beat, it can be crushing. Here's the other danger, you succeed. That's equally dangerous. Success may intoxicate us with the illusion of self-justification. Rather than placing our trust in God, we learn to trust our own piety and devotion. I actually succeeded. So do you get the dangers here? If you don't understand your role in Christ, you could, you're in danger if you succeed, and you're in danger if you fail. Uh, what's the other option? <laughs> the other option is to not see your, your life defined in those terms, but rather to walk with Christ in this. So as, as we bring this together, kind of wrap this idea up, don't let your inner Corinthian drive you to the extremes. Don't, don't let that inner desire to be authenticated by others or to rely on yourself, don't let that drive you to those extremes. Your, your identity is in Christ. Your identity is in what Jesus has done for you. Your job, your, your home life, your personal life, those kind of things, they may look very much like they did before. Hopefully the sin is out because this is with God. So again, fentanyl, bad stuff, don't do that. But your, your normal everyday life, it feels plain and mundane and shouldn't life be better and different? Maybe. There, there are extraordinary cases where people calls people, or God calls people to be missionaries on the spot. Um, there's, there are times when people just know after they're saved, I have this new thing I have to do. And, and everything is upside down and they go in a completely different direction. But most of us are not in that category. And it's okay. It's all right. Be content in the position that the Lord has called you to. Now, if you are one of those people that God's calling you to radical do, new life, then brother, sister, you go. And we'll, we'll walk with you through that. But most of us, I think, are going to be back here Sunday not a missionary to Saudi Arabia or something. We're going to be just normal people, and that's okay. The world's filled with more normal people, but we're not normal. We're, we're not the same as we were before. We've got something added to us. We've got an inheritance. We've got a promise. We've got a new life that's waiting, and so that's where Paul is taking us. He wants us to remain grounded in this because he's going to go back next week, and he's going to talk more about marriage, and this can be a, a real pressure for people who are married or not married you know, or want to be married or don't want to be married or whatever it is to drive to those extremes. 
And so we need to remember we're grounded in Christ, not in, in those external things. So with that, let's, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, it's just amazing to me that, that you could call us in the job we're in, the position we're in in life, the, the, the place we're in in society, in our families, and all of those things. And Lord, to remember, you assigned us that. You called us in that, and therefore you sanctify it by calling us to live in that role in a way that honors Christ, that serves you, that, that is beautiful instead of self-serving, that is liberating instead of enslaving for approval or pay or power. So Lord, thank you for that, that message. Thank you for that promise, that, that realization that we look exactly the same and yet something is significantly different. And Lord, I pray that you would empower each of us to walk that way. To, to believe the promises that you've made and to walk that way with you and that our new lives would be in service to Christ. Faith in work through love. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.